But this morning we're continuing our study in um, 2 Peter, and uh, we've been looking at 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to finish that up today, and uh, so I encourage you to turn over to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, and I just want to read our text for us. It'll begin in verse 16 of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As you know, the Bible, probably since God's word was revealed to people, has been attacked continuously. Um, There's some millionaire, I don't know his name, but he's had a standing offer to anybody who could disprove the facts of the Bible. Um, He offered them a million dollars, and that's been a standing offer for years. And a lot of people will look at the Bible and they'll read certain things and they'll see kind of contradictions here or there. But when you honestly look at it and you understand the text in which everything is written, uh, it does not uh, contradict itself. And the one thing we're going to be talking about today is the Word of God. Uh, Over the years, several, many conservative, orthodox, uh, evangelical scholars have really tirelessly in so many different ways um, defended the scripture that we hold in our hands today they defended its sufficiency they defended its trustworthiness and uh, those men along with others firmly really support what the reformers uh, view of the supremacy of the word of god and it's summarized like this the reformers believe scripture to be god's word written It was trusted, not doubted. It was studied, not ignored. It was taken as the final authority with regard to those matters on which it spoke or made affirmations. God had not revealed everything. The Bible did not expressly contain all the truth that could be known. But what the Bible did teach was believed to be completely trustworthy. They go on and they say, trust in any other area would not contradict biblical truth. Starting from Scripture, one can find the true knowledge of reality. Well, what the Apostle Paul has written for us here in 2 Peter, or the Apostle Peter has written here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, is really a bedrock foundation upon which we believe the written revelation that we hold in our hands is God's unfailing truth. Psalm 19 says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
through the prophet Isaiah. God said in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, he says this, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish what that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. See, there's no question that the word of God, in God's view, and in most Christians' view, is truth. Absolute authority. Even though it's been questioned over the years by people who do not believe it to be the truth. Uh, I think, have you ever heard, you know, hey, take my word on it. You know, people say that. What is that? If you don't take somebody's word, you're, you're really questioning their what? Their character. And I want you to understand that God stands behind his character. Um, the New Testament agrees with the Old Testament in every way. And it calls our God a God of truth. In John 3.33, it says, God is truthful. In John 17.3, it says, the only true God. 1 John 5.20 says, he is the true God. See, either you believe that or you don't. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. You can't have a God that's half true, half false. And so I want you to re- remember with me the goal that Peter is writing this letter. He, he basically has three primary purposes for the reason that he wrote this letter to this, uh, th- these folks, these Christians. First of all, it was to alert the readers to the dangers of false teachers. And then he wanted to remind them of their personal faith, that they shouldn't remain static and, and uh, they should become active in their faith. And then thirdly, he wanted to encourage believers in their faith and to expect the Lord's return. And so when we come to the purpose of the book, and we come to this text today, it's really, the whole book is almost kind of centered around here in chapter 2. We've already looked at how important it is to know your own salvation, to be sure that you're saved, so that when false teachers come sharing their false messages, you're not uh, tempted to believe them. But you not only have to know your salvation, but you also have to know the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures. Be sure that you understand the truth that we hold in our hands. Uh, last week we looked at a reminder to remember in the first verses 12 through 15. Today I want to look at a reason for reassurance. The reasons for reassurance. When we come to the Word of God, we have to understand that we believe that this is an inspired text. This isn't just a book that you buy at Barnes & Noble off the shelf and read it like a novel. The Word of God says that it's living, that it's active, that it can make changes, that it won't return void. We wholeheartedly believe that it is a supernatural book. Not everybody believes that. There's when you talk about the inspiration of God's word, there's a lot of different people that believe a lot of different things. The first thing is some hold to the theory of the natural theory of inspiration. And they basically think that the writers that wrote the book of the Bible that we know it today were basically no more inspired than somebody like William Shakespeare. They just sat down and decided to write a book. 
And then somebody came along and put them all together, and that's where they got the Bible. Very purely secular, natural. No inspiration, no deity involved, no divinity involved anywhere along the way. Well, also people believe in a mechanical dictation theory is what it's called, of inspiration. In other words, God used the writers of the Bible like, kind of like secretaries. In that he audibly dictated the actual words that they were to write down. And they just said, okay, what's next? You're okay. And some people believe that. Thirdly, there's the, the concept theory. That God only inspired the ideas of the Bible. He didn't inspire the actual words. Or the partial theory. God inspired only certain sections of the Bible or parts of the Bible. You, you hear that from people that when you talk to them about a, a holy God and, and maybe their sin, they, what do they say? They say, well, my God wouldn't send me to hell. My God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't do this. And what did they do? They've created in their own mind a God that they serve. It's not the God of the Bible. And so when you show them in Scripture something about something that God condemns, then what do they say? Well, I don't believe that part. (laughs) It's only partially inspired. Jesus, you know, that wasn't the words of Jesus. Or those are the words of Paul. You hear people say that all the time. And they make this big you know, argument that, well, it depends on whose words you're reading in Scripture as to whether or not they're actually the words of God. There's also the spiritual rule-only theory. In other words, only those parts of the Bible that refer to spiritual matters, things of salvation, or the afterlife, or things like that, things that are, are spiritual, are inspired by God. Everything else is not. In other words, science and history, when it talks about those things, that's clearly not inspired because clearly the Bible's got it all wrong when it comes to science because we all know that we evolved from the primordial soup up onto the, the beach and, and you know, sprouted gills and legs and all sorts of things and over billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years, this is what you get. We all believe that to be true. So when the Bible says, they don't know, God created us and created everything we see around us in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. Well, that, that can't be true. We were studying last Wednesday night about Jonah. In the book of Jonah, it talks about Jonah being swallowed up by a great fish. It doesn't say it's a whale, it just says a great fish. And we were talking in our class, and actually Keith sent me the article, of there's actually been cases where people have been swallowed whole by great fish. And actually stayed in the the gut of this fish. And when they they came out, they were bleached white from the acidic nature of the fish's gut. And yet, people all the time say, oh, don't believe that story about Jonah. That's just a story. See, they would say, that's not a spiritual aspect. We don't believe that part. Well, then there's the plenary verbal theory. When it comes to inspiration, God inspired all of the Bible, plenary, every word, every jot, every tittle, hence verbal. It implies that all parts of the Bible, that's what we hold to here, we teach that all parts of the Bible are equally inspired and important. I mean, John 3.16 is important, but it's no important verse than any other. There's no guaranteed placed upon the modern day versions of 
the Scriptures. What you hold in your hand today, I don't care what translation it is, unless it's a Greek New Testament, and even that, that's not made up of the original. They're all copies. We don't have any of the original texts. We believe that God somehow sovereignly oversaw the preservation of his word. So what we hold here in our hands today, whether it's the ESV or the New King James or the Old King James or the NIV or whatever you might pick, somehow you can get the gospel out of that. Somehow you could be pointed to Christ in that. Are there good translations and bad translations? Of course. There are some modern translations that I would personally stay way, way away from because they're not credible. But for the most part, a lot of the the major translations that are out there today are for the most part true to the text in the original language that we have. But also, this theory believes that Scripture contains no false teaching. Um, But it does record the lies of others in several places. When Satan lied to Eve, that's recorded for us. Also, it holds that no historical, scientific, or prophetic error is permitted. In other words, if the Bible said that the world is flat, we'd have a problem. Or if the Bible said certain other things about our our physical being that were not true, we'd have a problem. It would contradict. And it doesn't do that. Uh, Biblical writers did use extra-biblical sources. Paul in Acts 17, Titus chapter 1. But all those were overseen by God. All those are inspired when he wrote the text. Um, I think also it holds to the fact that God did not overwhelm the personality of the human writer. In other words, when you read a letter from Paul, it sounds like Paul. When you read something from Peter, it sounds like Peter. When you read something from one of the other writers, John or whoever, it sounds like them. You can pick up on their personality. God didn't just all of a sudden come upon these individuals and like robots, they started writing. Removed totally from their personality and their experience. When you read through the Gospel of Luke, all of a sudden you pick up a lot of medical facts that you don't pick up in any of the other Gospels. Why is that? Because Luke was a doctor. See, all that stuff kind of fleshes itself out. Also, it holds that uniformity is not required in all the details of the events described in the Bible. And that God inspired the use of certain pictorial or symbolic language. And we have to keep that in mind when we read the Bible. And God has accurately transmitted in the Bible all that he wishes us to know. Sometimes the Bible doesn't speak to certain things. God is silent on certain things. Now, sometimes you can, you can take other portions of Scripture and kind of figure out, well, this must be what, what we should believe on that. But sometimes you can't even do that. And sometimes God holds those hidden things for him and him alone. 
And so I want you to understand that we hold to a, a verbal plenary inspiration of the word of God. We believe every word is written. I wrote a little uh, um, definition there. What does inspiration mean on the back? And uh, we'll, we'll be covering that later, but you can read that, uh, cover that at the end of the service. But it's important to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Because here, Peter wants us to be reassured. He's giving us reasons for reassurance. And in verse 16, he starts off with basically an experience, a supernatural experience that the disciples had. The testimony of apostolic witnesses. He says in verse 16, look at our text, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. First-hand eyewitnesses. See, the first line of defense here against false teachers when it comes to knowing the word of God Peter says, hey, we just didn't make this stuff up. It's important that you understand, he's writing to his readers, that we just didn't have a bad pizza and have a bad dream and start writing crazy stories. This isn't how it happened. We were eyewitnesses of this. Please understand, these are people, the writers of the the, the New Testament especially, were people who had walked with Christ. They had talked with Christ. They had experienced his life firsthand. They traveled with him. They experienced his teachings, his miracles. They even experienced his death, his resurrection. They had seen the living Christ, the crucified Christ, the risen Christ. And they had been exposed to almost a a supernatural experience, you might call it, of the glory that will one day happen at his second coming. That happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he says there in verse 16, hey, we did not follow some scheme that we came up with. That word fable there, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths or fables. Something that's not true, something that's just made up. No, we didn't follow that. No, this is fact. The story of Jesus is fact. And it stands in stark contrast to some of the Jewish fables that were told. Titus 1.14 talks about that. Sometimes they would put those fables even over the word of God. That's what got them in trouble. That's why they came up with all these traditions. All the Jewish traditions, a lot of them aren't found in Scripture. A lot of them they just made up on their own. Some of them are, but a great majority of their tradition is just that. It's tradition, the traditions of men. I like how some translations put this verse. One says, we were not following cleverly devised legends. Or this one, for they were no, for they were no victor, vic, fictitious stories that we followed. Or this one, it was not on tales artfully spun that we had relied See, but they said, no, we we saw this. We saw it firsthand. See, if if what they claim to have happened here, beloved, didn't happen, that's the only alternative. 
They're making it up. It's fake. Either they were telling the truth or they're carefully and purposefully kind of fabricating lies to deceive people. That's the nature of a false teacher. Their testimony was that of eyewitnesses. It says, we were eyewitnesses concerning Jesus' coming, his powerful coming. In other words, they couldn't have been deceived. They saw what they saw. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Acts 10.41, as Peter said in in the household of Cornelius, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. These are people that spent time with the risen Christ. Or 1 John 1, 1, it says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, and we looked upon, and our hands even handled concerning Christ, the word of life. And they give an example of this eyewitness. What exactly did they see, Peter? Look at verse 17. It says, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, and we all know where this came from, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. They saw this. They saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration before them. And he was joined with Moses and Elijah. Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9. They literally saw just a small sliver of the glory that will be exposed when Christ returns at his second coming. See, it's, it's talking about here the future coming of the Lord. And you're saying, well, how could Peter have already seen it if Christ hasn't come for the second time yet? Because they were personally there when Christ just pulled the curtain back quickly on the Mount of Transfiguration. When he was joined with Moses and Elijah. Look at, at Matthew 17. Just so you know what we're talking about here. Matthew 17, 1, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led him up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his eyes and his clothes became white as light. Have you ever stared at the sun? Just for... It's not a smart thing to do, by the way. I wouldn't encourage you to do that. But you can do it for a split second. But you do it any longer, you're going to mess up your eyes. That's, that's the intensity of the glory and the majesty of the Lord. It says that his face shone like the sun. His, white became, his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And look at what Peter says. I like this. Peter says to Jesus, "Uh, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Leave it up to Peter. He's always got to be doing something. He's always, you know, hey, we got to be proactive here. 
And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, what did they do? They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The idea is it was just a split second. This isn't like a thing that lasted a half hour. It was just quick, like boom. Whoa, what happened? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. (laughs) They were scared. They fell down on their faces. See, I think today in our churches, we've lost some of the, the idea that we serve a holy God. We've lost some of that reverence. We've lost some of, of, of what it means to come together as a body of Christ and worship Him in spirit and truth. You walk into a lot of churches on Sunday morning, it's, it's like a party. It's like something you see on MTV. It's crazy. That's not what we're here to do. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to, to just have a good time and, 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 and play some favorite songs and, and hold hands and sing kumbaya. That's not why we're here, beloved. We're here to worship the almighty God who created us and gave his son on behalf of us so that we could be restored in our relationship with him because our relationship was breached because of sin. And he loved and he cared for us so much that he couldn't stand being separated. And he gave a way out of that separation through Christ. And so Peter says, hey, we saw this. This isn't something we just made up. That We were eyewitnesses to this. Either they're telling the truth here or they're just making something silly up. It's interesting because I don't think many people would die for a lie. And when the apostles wrote the Word of God in the New Testament, a lot of what they said was based on their own personal experience. And they went to their graves believing it, being martyred for that very belief. So they had this supernatural experience. They heard the voice of God. Have you ever heard somebody talk about seeing a vision of God? Seeing Jesus next to him while they're shaving in the morning or whatever it might be? It's just kind of silly. It's kind of crazy. The Word of God tells me that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's what it says. That's where he's at. And it just bugs me sometimes when these people come up with these visions of whatever, and Jesus is personally visiting them in some divine manner, and they can just go on and explain the whole thing. Oh, yeah, he was wearing this, and we talked. And Very seldom does it say, wow, As soon as he was there, we were flat on our face. Couldn't even lift our head. Couldn't even look at him. He was so holy. They had this experience, but you know what? 
God did not depend upon their experience only. This experience was limited to those individuals that were there. But God in His sovereignty and by means of the Holy Spirit, He really superintended all the writing of all their experiences so that they were a revelation of God Himself, not just some experience that we had. This was a supernatural process that went on. So you have the the, the first-hand eyewitnesses that were there when Christ did all these miraculous things on the Mount of Transfiguration and throughout His ministry. And Peter's saying, hey, we're not making this stuff up. This is real. This is real. And now writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, we see the, the second reason for our reassurance is not only their personal experience, But you never just want to go by personal experience, do you? You get in trouble that way real quick. But also they have divine revelation or supernatural revelation. Look at verse 19. It says, and we have something more sure. And you might say, well, more sure than what? More sure than experience. Don't just listen to Peter's experience. There's a lot of people that have experiences that are really crazy. They write books about them, how they went to heaven and saw all this stuff. And people buy the books and, oh, it's a wonderful book. As far as I'm concerned, it's a pack of lies. It's a pack of lies. It's something they came up with on their own. Or it's demonic. It's definitely not from God. I can say that because what they see and what they say they see doesn't line up with God's word, the truth. But it's not good enough just to have experience. But he says, we have something more sure. Then he says, the prophetic word. In the original Greek, it reads this way. And we have more sure the prophetic word. We have more sure the prophetic word, more than experience, even though it's validated because there were eyewitnesses and they had this genuine experience, the apostles did. Peter didn't want anybody to question what was going on here and question the truth of God just because they may may have questioned his experience. So he says, you know what, there's something even more sure than that. It's the word of God. If you don't believe me and my experience, look at the word of God. What they did is they verified all the Old Testament prophecies that have been made about the Savior. And when they got this personal preview of Jesus in his ministry, you know what? They were, they were constantly connecting the dots. They were constantly saying, whoa, you know, wasn't this promised? The guy would be born in this situation and that situation. And wasn't it promised that the Messiah would do this? And they were, they were constantly connecting the dots as only they could. And everything was pointing to Christ. What's interesting is there in verse 19 when it says, and we have something more sure. That doesn't just refer to Peter and the apostles. That refers to all of us. 
It's not the same emphatic we that we find up in verse 18. We ourselves heard. That's different. In verse 18, it clearly refers to Peter, James, and John. But here, whether you want to say we collectively, the church, whatever you might say, but it's speaking of of we all have this. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. See, the word is, is much more reliable, as far as a source goes, than any experience. Even the disciples and even the apostles' experience. It doesn't even compare when you come to the word of God. The word of God is more specific, it's more detailed, it's more exact. It's, it's more of those than anybody's experience could ever be. And so, some people in Peter's time were calling into question whether the Messiah will come back, or the second coming, is that ever going to happen? And when they do that, he's laying a foundation here in, in chapter, uh, chapter 3 of Second Peter, Verse 4, it says, They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So people were saying, Ah, He's not coming back. And Peter's like, Oh, no, no, He's coming back. Be assured. First of all, because He told us our own experience, but also it's found in the prophetic word. That word there, prophetic word, refers to inspired Scripture. The inspired text. Now obviously it would include the whole Old Testament in that time. And what he's saying is everything is pointing to the Savior. Everything, when you read throughout the Old Testament. Every book, every principle, it's constantly pointing us in a direction that looks forward to the Messiah. And so the adjective there, prophetic, embraces all of Scripture, even the New Testament. That Some of it may not have been written at this point. Anything that came from God is what he's saying. Anything that's prophetic in the sense that it had its source in God. John 5, 39 said this, Jesus said this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these, what? The Scriptures that bear witness of me. When he's saying they're the Scriptures, he's speaking of the Old Testament. Luke twenty four twenty seven, On the road to Emmaus, remember when he was walking? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus expounded to the disciples there the things concerning himself. In all the Scriptures. He was constantly taking them back. To the scriptures saying, look at here's what this points to. It points to me. It points to me. Even in Luke 24, verse 44 and 45, then he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, then he opened their minds. What's it say? To understand the scriptures. See, that's why I say this is just not a normal book. 
This isn't like you're, you're, you're reading a copy of Moby Dick, okay? It's something much deeper, much greater. It's a supernatural book. And the Bible says in the New Testament, the natural man can't understand it. Can't understand it. That's why Jesus had to open their minds to understand the scriptures. And you know what, beloved? All the way from Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament speaks about Christ in one way or another. And so it's important that we understand that not only by the disciples' experiences here, but also by this revelation, this divine supernatural revelation. The prophetic word was from God, and it's a lot surer than any kind of human experience. So whether it's the Old Testament prophets or whether it's the word of the New Testament apostles, you know what? It's all a more sure word to us than our experience. He's referring here to all inspired revelation, some of which may not even have been written yet. All scripture, the Bible says, is inspired by God. Now, verse 19 He says that you have something more sure, the prophetic word. And then he says this, to which you will do well to pay attention. (laughs) In other words, listen up, heads up. Let's let's turn on our, our ears. Let's open our eyes. He's saying to all of us, you know what? You're going to be exposed to false teachers. False teachers are on the horizon. They're already in this text. They were there. They're already in our text today, our context. You have false teachers all over the place. You don't believe me? Just turn on the the TV and hear some of these, these wacky guys on TV. There's some good guys, but a lot of it's just garbage. They're after your money. And so what Peter says is, look, because you're going to be exposed to these false teachers, you better pay attention to the truth. You better pay attention to what God has divinely given you through His Word. The prophetic Word to which you will do well to pay attention. The idea there is to kind of bend your ear toward it. To carefully heed it. To desire to want to know more. I mean, it's one thing to know about your salvation and understand that you're saved and understand the nature of your salvation. That's one defense against false teachers. But here Peter is, is lying in a, laying in a second defense. You know what? Know the Scriptures. Know the Word of God. You have to know you're in Christ and you have to know where you stand in Christ. And now he says, you know what? Know your Scriptures. Understand what it says and why it says it. And then look at the example he gives. He says, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. (laughs) To a lamp shining in a dark place. Have you ever been in a very, very, very dark place? Or one time I was in a cave. And you get down in this cave and it's a tour. And the guy says, okay, I'm going to turn the lights out. And he turned the lights out. 
I mean, I've never been in darkness like that before. I mean, everybody was quiet. It was, you could hear people breathing. <laughs> you, know, you, just, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. Nothing. And eventually, he turned his little light back on, his flashlight back on. And I remember him saying, how long do you think I had the light out for? Everybody said, oh, a minute, two minutes, three minutes, you know. I had it off for 10 seconds. <laughs> it seemed like an eternity because it was so dark. See, the idea here is, you know what? If you're wandering around in a very dark place, the one thing you need more than anything is a light. You need a light to see where you're going. And that's the example that God lays out for us here. I mean, the world we live in, beloved, is a dark place. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. That word dark originally meant a dry or a parched land. Meant dirty, murky. See, we need a lamp that can guide us, that can be the lamp of revelation to our hearts and to our minds. Because without it, we're not going to see anything. We're going to be blinded to the things of God. We must know the word of God. I think that people become vulnerable to anything and everything that's out there, by the way, that comes down the pike when they, even though they may believe the scriptures, even though they know that they're in Christ and they know they're saved. And they, if you ask them, is this the word of God? They would say yes. But they don't have a deep understanding of what's in it. And you see them mixed up in all kinds of different beliefs and cults and all sorts of things. Sometimes people say, boy, I don't know what happened to that guy. You know, he used to come to church and he's a Christian and everything. Now he's in this cult. Because they don't know the word of God. They may know about it, but they don't know the word of God. John MacArthur uses the illustration of Scripture being kind of like a nightlight. It's just a, it's just a light that's there just to kind of help you get through the night. It's only temporary. I mean, Scripture is going to last forever, but the idea of it being a light, we're not going to need that kind of light when we're in glory. We're going to be in his presence, but we need it down here on the earth because we live in a place of darkness and that's what he says follow the light give heed to the light and he talks about it being temporary because he goes on and he says until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts The sun here is Christ. The day dawning is his coming, the return of Christ in splendor. The morning star rises in your hearts. It's clear to understand that as far back as in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, it says, There shall come a star out of Jacob. Stars the Messiah, beloved. 
all the way to Revelation 22.16. It says, I am the root of the offspring of David, the bright and what? Morning star. This refers to Christ. The morning star will rise in your heart. Is this some spiritual thing or is this something that's visible, physical? What is this? It's the return of his kingdom. And what he is saying here basically is when Christ comes, not only will he be this blazing light, physically visible to everybody, but he will also fill our lives and dissipate any of the questions, any of the doubts, any of the, 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 the hesitancies we may have. All that is going to be gone. The outer transformation will be the inner transformation and they will all occur. And so Peter says you have a more sure word than just experience. And then thirdly, he talks about divine inspiration here in verses 20 to 21. He says, knowing this first of all. In other words, hey, this is of primary importance here. You might want to listen to this because it's very important that you understand what I'm about to say. He says, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Or some translations say private interpretation. Peter is saying here that you can have confidence in light when you're in a dark place. You can trust it completely. Now, a lot of people say, well, this must mean that everybody has a different take on Scripture. Everybody has, you know, different interpretations. Have you ever been sharing the Word of God with somebody and they say, oh, that's your interpretation. They say it all the time. And I always say, no, no, no. There's only one interpretation of Scripture. There's only one. And the text dictates what that interpretation is. We can't make up our own interpretations. That's how you get in trouble. But he's not even talking about our understanding here of Scripture. That's not what that word means. It it, it has the idea of the source of it. The source of Scripture didn't come from me. It didn't come from you. It came from God. That's what he's saying here. And that's so important for us to get and to understand. Because if it came from God, then you go back to the idea that, well, we already established that what? God is true. Right? His word is true. And so if it came from God, then it must be true. So Peter's saying, hey, on top of our experience, on top of this supernatural revelation that we have, this more sure word, we have the inspiration of God of his holy word. We just didn't make this up on our own. Somebody else didn't come up with this as a source. No, it came from God. See, that's the problem, and that's where people fall to the guise of a lot of false teachers. 
because they don't know what the Word is saying. And so a false teacher says something, they'll say, well, that sounds kind of true. That's why it's so dangerous when you listen to some of these guys on TV. Well, you know, I'll listen to Joel Olstein. He's just, he's, he's inspirational. And not everything he says is bad. I would agree with that statement. But I wouldn't suggest you listen to Joel Olstein. Because it's that little bit. In his case, there's quite a bit there. That's wrong when it comes to his understanding of Scripture. And he shares it in such a slick way that it actually feels and tastes and looks kind of good. I don't see the harm in this. I kind of feel good after I listen to Joel, you know, tells those funny stories. And When we come to the Word of God, we're, we're not coming to the Word of God. We don't come here on a Sunday morning so somebody can pump us up and make us feel good. That's not the purpose of our gathering together we're here to worship god in spirit and truth and to do that you have to have some semblance of understanding of what the truth is in the old testament you remember the evidence of a false teacher was that he spoke of himself he spoke for himself in jeremiah 23 verse 16 it says thus says the lord of hosts do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you, they're leading you into futility. They speak a vision, listen to this, of their own imagination. What's he saying? Jeremiah is saying, you know what? What these prophets, these false prophets, are saying is whatever vision they had, they simply made it up. It's their own imagination. Even in verse 21, he says, I didn't send these prophets. I didn't speak to them. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned their backs from their evil way and from their evil deeds. Even down in verse 25 of Jeremiah 23, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesied falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long, it goes on, is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of deception of their own heart? In other words, they're deceived. They may have had a dream, but it wasn't a dream from God, beloved. Be very, very careful whenever you hear somebody say, well, here's what I experienced. Because if it does not line up with what the Word of God has in this covers, I don't know what they're experiencing, but it's not from God. I don't care how good it sounds. I don't care, you know, how incredible it may seem. Even in Ezekiel 13.3, God says, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirits and have seen nothing. In other words, they don't know anything. And so Peter, here back in 2 Peter, says, you know what? The writers of the Scriptures are not like those prophets. The writers of the Scriptures don't speak for themselves. They speak for God. And so in verse 20, he says, I want you to know this. It's of primary importance that you understand where this truth comes from. It comes from God. That's why you need to pay attention to it. This isn't some cunningly devised fable that we just made up. This isn't 
from someone's own source. No, this is from God. He is the source of Scripture. So many times you see on TV, you know, these get quick, you know, real estate things and get rich quick, all this stuff, and people will come up with manuals. And people spend thousands of dollars to get these individuals who are successful in real estate or whatever, get their, their trade secrets. And so they'll spend thousands of dollars to buy their manual so they can learn how to do what they do. They put a quality on something that works for somebody else. Beloved, the Word of God works. It works. It works in the hearts of people. All you have to do is look around the room and look at the different testimonies. We could go around here today and say, hey, let's hear your testimony. If you're a Christian, you have a testimony. You have something that God has done to you supernaturally. You came to him and saved you out of your own sin. And now you're, you're walking and living for him on a daily basis. Things are not the same. All that is evidence that what we are reading here today is true. No prophecy of Scripture. Word means comes into to being there. No prophecy of Scripture comes into being from one's own interpretation, from one's own experience. It all comes from God. The NIV has a very good translation of that verse, actually. It says, no scripture, no prophecy of Scripture ever came about by a prophet's own ideas. I like that. This wasn't guys that just got together and decided to write some pages on a book and call it the Bible. No, this is something that God moved in their hearts, and he, he, he caused them to write these words. And then he says in verse... 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. This is not something that somebody just came up with on their own. It's divine inspiration. But it says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, quite contrary from Scripture being of, of human origin, it's of divine origin. Because no prophecy, no word of Scripture, no word from God has ever, absolutely ever existed at any time by the act of a will for human being. It's impossible. The Bible is not a product of men, it's a product of God. That's why we put such a great emphasis on the teaching and the preaching of God's word. The studying of God's word. That's why it's so important. From Moses all the way to Malachi and even in the New Testament, writers who wrote about the second coming of Christ were always inspired by the, word, by the spirit of God. They just didn't go into some trance and start writing. Think of it this way, you know, think of a a sailboat with a big sail. And when the wind comes and it fills that sail and it moves that sailboat in the direction that it needs to go. That's what the Holy Spirit did here with the writers of the New Testament. That's why every book is different. They're not all clones of one another. That's why sometimes there are apparent contradictions going, whoa, this guy saw this and that guy saw that. How How do you make sense of that? Well, you can. 
Kind of like we were all down here on the corner and we saw an automobile accident and we all got interviewed afterwards. We all have a different take on the accident. See, that, that authenticates the word of God. We're not looking at a cookie cutter kind of thing that was just stamped out. It speaks of everything. If I was a man and I was going to write a book about the human race, you know, I'd probably do it in a, in a very uh, glorified way. I'd want man to look the best, but that's not what the word of God does. It has the good, the bad, the ugly, everything all wrapped up into one. And it's important that we take it for what it is. In the Old Testament alone, over 3,800 times, the writers refer to their words as the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 Verse 10 says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, for whom men know the thoughts of a man, except the Spirit of the man which is in them. Even so, the thoughts of God no one ever knows except the Spirit of God. So we need to take heart in the the book that we hold near and dear to us, known as the Word of God, the Bible. We need to understand that, you know what, if we're going to be on guard against all the false heresy teaching that's going around today, we better understand what's in this book. And we better understand how to best apply this book. Because it's a light for our path each and every day until... The Son of God returns from glory. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, this morning, we thank you for the inspired text of Scripture. And Lord, we know that even though none of the original autographs are even around, as far as the text of Scripture goes, that somehow sovereignly you all oversaw and took care of our need in supplying us with the Word of God. And Father, it's not about which translation we have, but it's about what is our heart toward the Word of God. Is it precious to us? Do we desire it? Do we long to study it? Do we long to understand the depths of its meaning? That's the only way that we're going to be kept from the false teachers and false prophecies that are around us today. Not enough just to know a verse here or there. But you understand the text. You understand it in its context. If there's anyone here today who is yet to hear and acknowledge and understand the gospel of Christ, I pray that you would pull them to yourself, Lord. That you would, as you did with the disciples, give them understanding. Help their unbelief. Help, under, help them understand their need of a Savior, that they're lost in their sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. I don't know how good you might think you are here today, but the Word of God does not lie. It does not call you good. You don't have a good heart. You're not a good person. Maybe by the world's standards, but not by God's standards. None of us are. That's why we're all in this boat together. We all need a Savior. And out of His love, God provided 
just that through Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, he did miracles, he was buried and he rose on the third day. And then he ascended to his father. As we prepare our hearts for communion, let's never forget the sacrifice that was made on our behalf so that our relationship with our Father could be reconciled, could be brought back together, could be healed through Christ, our Savior. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. Pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Prepare our hearts now for communion in Jesus' name. Amen.